Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 139. Psalm 139, this is where we started last week and we're going to finish it today. I've had the wonderful privilege of seeing both of my boys being born. I was able to be in the delivery room. It's a wonderful experience to see the miracle of childbirth. And children are a gift from the Lord. I'm so thankful for my two boys and being there to see their birth. As a church family, over the past few years, we've partnered with the Northeastern Colorado uh, Caring Pregnancy Resource Center. And back in January, a few of us attended their banquet where they celebrated their 20th anniversary of being out here in our area. In 2019, last year, they saved 20 babies from abortion and helped 84 families that were in crisis in our area. So we are so thankful for what the Caring Pregnancy Center does. And so every year about this time between Mother's Day and Father's Day, we do the baby bottle campaign where we raise money for the pregnancy center. And so much of the funds that we give and that other churches and other organizations give go to help purchase ultrasound equipment. And ultrasounds have been probably the number one deterrent to help women not get an abortion. I mean, and ultrasounds are pretty wonderful. I mean, at four and a half weeks, a baby can be seen. At five weeks, you can hear the heartbeat. So caring for the unborn, the Caring Pregnancy Center. May is also Foster Care Appreciation Month. And many of our church have served as foster parents. Many currently are. Uh, and so we just want to encourage you to be involved in that as well. And so maybe you think during this COVID-19 pandemic that the Caring Pregnancy Center and, and, and um, the, the Logan County Department of Human Services are not ministering to children and families, and, and yet they are. And you as, as a Christian and as a church family can be a part of those things. We can help the unborn child as well as foster children. And so we want to celebrate the gift of children. And that's really the amazing thing that we see in Psalm 139. Last week we started Psalm 139 and we saw two big theological truths. Truth number one, you cannot escape the perfect knowledge of God who knows all things. You can't escape that perfect knowledge that God has. That's called omniscience. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Second, you cannot escape God's perfect presence in all places. We call that God's omnipresence. And yet there's a third powerful truth in Psalm 139 that tells us about God. And it's this. You cannot escape God's perfect power over all things. You cannot escape God's perfect 
power over all things. This is called God's omnipotence. He is supremely sovereign over all things because he's the creator and the sustainer of all things. Now, David in this psalm is blown away as he reflects upon God's knowledge of him and God's omnipresence. And as he begins to reflect upon these things, he then moves to God's creative power, his omnipotence. And there's many places David could have gone. He could have gone all the way back to Genesis 1 and focused on how God spoke the creation into existence. And that definitely does show the power of God. But instead, in this psalm, David makes it very personal. He reflects upon how the sovereign creator of all things actually created him in his mother's womb. So let's finish up the psalm this morning Psalm 139, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them as enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way. Everlasting. So for this morning, we're going to look at three truths that this passage of Scripture teaches about the omnipotence of God. First of all, here's the first truth. Truth number one. God is the author of every detail of your life. God is the author of every detail of your life. You see this in verses 13 through 18. Now, David takes us on a journey of how God does that. And before we're even born, God sovereignly had us in his mind. Notice what he says in verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God has this sovereign book in which he determined to create every single one of us and sovereignly determined when we would be born, where would we be born, who our parents would be, what country we would be born in, what conditions. God is sovereign even over the aspects before we're even born, before the creation of the world. God sovereignly predestined us to be born. It's like what he says to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1, 4-5, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. 
And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So before we were even born, God chose us and had us in his mind. All of our days were written in this book before we were even born. But David really here goes into great detail into how God created him in his mother's womb. And what's amazing to me about this passage of Scripture is the artistic language that David uses and the insight that the Holy Spirit gave to him thousands of years before modern medicine and technology and ultrasounds. It's just amazing that the description that David uses to talk about the miracle of what God does in creating a human being. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You formed. Now, I want us to pay very close attention to the verbs that David uses here. Because he uses a smattering, a, a great variety of verbs to describe this. And so the, you formed me. It's an interesting word. That word means to purchase or to buy. It, it conveys ownership. God owns us because he created us. Then you see there in verse 13, you knitted me in my mother's womb. You knitted me. Verse 14, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made. You see that same word in verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret depths of the earth. Being made. That word really means uniquely made. God uniquely makes you like no other person on earth. You are uniquely fashioned by God. He's made you, you, sovereignly. In verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven, intricately woven. It's almost like God is a master weaver or he's one that does intricate needlepoint. Now, when I was growing up, my mother did needlepoint. She's a big fan of, of hummingbirds, and so she used to do a lot of, of needlepoint. And I remember just... She would sit there sometimes when we'd be watching basketball or watching TV, and she would be doing needlepoint, just all the intricacies. And so I think about the intricacies of needlepoint, and think about the imagery that David uses here is that God is intricately and creatively and powerfully knitting us together in our mother's womb. Ecclesiastes 11.5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. I like the way the writer of Ecclesiastes says this. We really have no idea what goes on there. All we know is that for nine months we see the outside of the woman. But God is doing some interesting, intricate work to bring about a child. Now, you may wonder, why does David say, when I was being woven in the depths of the earth? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's metaphorical language. It doesn't mean literally David was in a hole in the ground. It's a metaphor for being in his mother's womb. 
in the darkness of his mother's womb. Again, we don't know what all goes on down there. Back then, they didn't know. They just knew that there was a lot of creative activity that God was doing in a mother's womb. But what's very interesting, very interesting, is look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Nowhere else in the Hebrew Bible is this term used, unformed substance. That's the way the ESV translates it. It literally means embryo or fetus, which is very, very important because right here in the Scriptures, we have life defined for us from the moment of conception. Let me be very, very clear on that. Life begins at the moment of conception. It is not a sack of fluid. It is not a glob or tissue. It is a human being uniquely fashioned by a sovereign God. And to take the life of that baby, I can't say it any clearer, is murder. So abortion is an evil because of the intricacy of what God is doing and bringing about human life, forming us in the womb. Job 31.15, Did not he who made me in the womb make him? And didn't he not one fashion us in the womb? Even Job says God fashioned and made us in the womb. Isaiah says it, Isaiah 44, 1 through 2. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. So David says, listen, God is sovereign over your life. God is omnipotent over your life, even before you're born. You were written in this book that God has all the days of your life. And then you're intricately woven together in the womb. And then once you're born, if you remember from last week in verses 2 through 5, God is, is everywhere with us. So from the moment you're born to the moment you die and everywhere in between, God is there. God knows all things. God is all powerful. So before the foundation of the earth, before you were born, in your mother's womb, your birth, and every single detail of your life to the day you die, God is the sovereign author of everything. Which really shows us that we're not in control of our lives. God is from first to last. Now in verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, my, the embryo, the fetus, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Formed for me. Now, that's a different Hebrew word than the one that he used up there in verse 13. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. That's more speaking of ownership and, and purchasing us and redeeming us. But in verse 16, the days you were formed for me, that word is more like a potter shaping the clay. God's a master potter shaping the clay. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Some of you are very artistic. You like to paint. You like to sculpt. You like to draw. You like to create. 
And this passage should excite you because think about the words that David uses to describe God. He's a master weaver. He's the ultimate needlepoint master. He fashions us like a master potter with the clay. God creatively and powerfully grants us life, and we are uniquely made for His glory. Now, when you stop and you step back and you think about the magnitude of this God, you need to respond. And that's what David does. Notice what he does. In verses 17 and 18, David's responding here. From before his birth to his conception to what was going on in the womb to to God being sovereign over everything of his life, notice how he responds. He says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. These truths about God are precious. Verse 17, how precious to me. That word means weighty. So much so that David lies awake at night just contemplating God and his glory and his majesty, the greatness of the living God. He can't even think. It's so vast. It blows his mind. Psalm 40, verse 5. You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. So David is blown away by God's omniscience. He knows all things. We looked at that last week. By God's omnipresence, he's everywhere at all times. We looked at that last week. And by God's omnipotence, especially in creating him in his mother's womb. Now, what you should notice as you're reading this psalm is that there's an abrupt shift in verse 19. I mean, for for the first 18 verses, David's been contemplating the character of God, and then in verse 19, he switches to expressing this, this, this holy anger, almost hatred towards evildoers, people who hate God. Now, why such change? Well, we really don't know, but here's my guess. When you spend significant amounts of time thinking and pondering about God, God's glory, God's majesty, God's omniscience, His omnipresence, His his omnipotence, His sovereignty, when your mind is consumed with the glory of God and then you look at the world and you see the evil around you, Your reaction is to think, my goodness, I live amongst a culture of people that hate this God that I worship. Not only do some people just not care about this God, some people downright hate this God. And it begins to rile David up when he thinks about people around him who don't recognize these things about the living God the way he does. So here's the second truth. The first truth is God is the author of every detail of your life. But here's another truth that David addresses. Truth number two, God is the enemy of everyone who hates him. God is the enemy of everyone who hates him. You see this in verses 19 through 22. 
David uses some pretty graphic language here to describe these ungodly people who stand opposed to God. Notice what he says there. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Tell us how you really think, David. That's strong language. He says that they're men of blood. They're bloodthirsty. Verse 20, they speak with malicious intent. They have false motives. They have evil intentions. They're malicious. They take God's name in, in vain. They're blasphemers. They, they cuss God out. Verse 21, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Those that want to rebel against God? David says elsewhere in Psalm 26, verse 5, I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. In verse 19, he says, depart from me. I want nothing to do with this wickedness. Now, we need to be very careful here that we don't somehow, we don't, we don't want to lessen what David is saying here because it's very, very strong language. But we also want to understand it in context of the entire Bible. I don't think that David has so much personal animosity against any one person in particular. But I think David hates their behavior. David hates their cursing. David hates their attitude. David hates their rebellion. And he wants God to be honored. He wants to protect God's name. And he wants to separate himself. He sees the wickedness of the culture all around him. He says, I don't want any part of this. And that's really what should happen when you think about God. And you compare the glory of God with the world in which we live. Yes, we live in a polluted world of sin that's hostile to God and hostile to His glory and could care less about the gospel. And sometimes you just want to separate yourself from that. But we need to be very, very careful. Because if you speak like this, let me just say this. It's not wrong to be bothered by a sinful culture. It's not wrong to be offended by people that are doing wicked things around you. But before you begin to cast stones, you need to look at your own motives as well. Because you can be very quick, I can be very quick to look at the evil of others and not examine ourselves. So you need to ask yourself some questions. If I do get angry at a culture that's in sin, am I being arrogant? Am I being entitled? Am I being hypocritical in areas? Am I inflating myself as superior? If you notice something, David quickly moves away from the wicked world, and he ends this psalm focusing on himself. So here's what I need to tell you. For every one complaint or hatred that you have toward the world, we need to take ten looks at ourselves. What's true about us? You know what the Bible says about our hearts, about our blind spots. Jeremiah 17, 9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So David brings the psalm to this laser-sharp focus at the very end, and he, and he says, God, I'm going to pray now 
and I'm going to ask you to do this deep search, this deep dive into my heart. Very personal. So here's the, the truth, the final truth, and we see this in the last two verses. Here's truth number three. God is the searcher or the investigator or the examiner, whatever word you want to use, of our sinful hearts. God's the searcher of our sinful hearts. David is quick to look at himself. After he's looked at the world and he's bothered and he's, and he's distressed, he, he begins to look at himself. And I want you to look at all the words that he uses here. I mean, I mean David is just using word after word. He, he could have just used one word throughout this whole psalm. He's big vocabulary here. Okay, let's look. Verse 23, search me, O God. That is, investigate, examine carefully. Know my heart. We do not oftentimes know our own hearts. We can't even begin to know the sin that is so deep in our hearts because we're blinded to it. We need to have our hearts exposed because we don't know what's there. Try me. Okay? You know what that word means in the Hebrew text there? Test me by melting down metal so the dross rises to the top. Take me through a fiery trial like you would to, to, to get the impurities out of gold so that you can bring the dross to the top and that, that there can be a purification process. I mean, Psalm 26, 2. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind. This is David saying, God, put me through a trial if that's what it's going to take to expose my heart. And sometimes this can be painful. Job 23.10, But he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. When God has tried me, I'll come out as gold. I may not like going through the trial, but I'll come out as gold. I mean, Peter addresses this. In 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, thou, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Try me, God. And then... Know my thoughts. This isn't, this isn't David saying, God, just read my mind. That word thoughts there is know my disturbing, my disquieting thoughts, my, my restless misgivings, the anxious thoughts that I have because of the sin in my life. And then verse 24, see if there be any grievous way in me. Now, why does David say grievous? That's the way the ESV translates it, grievous. The Hebrew word he uses there, grievous, means that which causes pain. That which causes pain. We have attitudes, thoughts, lusts, behaviors, actions that not only cause us pain, but cause others pain. Are we doing things that cause 
pain to ourselves and to others through our sins. And then I want you to think about this. Ultimately, a grievous way you can grieve the very Holy Spirit of God. Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, very last line of the psalm. How does David end it? Okay. After he prays for God to do this intimate, deep dive into his heart, the, the omniscient, the omnipotent, the omnipresent God, what does David pray? Lead me. Lead me in the way everlasting. He wants to be led. David doesn't want to chart his own course. David doesn't want to be in charge of his life. David doesn't want to be in control. David wants to surrender to the lordship of Christ and say, you lead me. I want to follow you to the way everlasting, ultimately to that which brings glory to God. Now, as we conclude Psalm 139, I want us to think about application because it's one thing to, have, to know these great theological truths about God. So you can go up to someone and impress them. Do you know God's omniscient? Do you know God's omnipresent? Do you know God's omnipotent? Omni, omni, omni? And they'll look at you like, that's great. You can win a Bible trivia contest. You've thrown out some big theological words, but so what? Okay, yes, we need to know that he's omniscient. He knows all things. Yes, we need to know that he's omnipresent. He's in all places everywhere. We need to know he's omnipotent. He's the sovereign creator of all things. But that should lead to something that changes our lives, how we live, how we respond. What should these truths do in us? So let me suggest three points of application. What should these truths, God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, God's omnipotence, what should these truths that Psalm 39 has taught us, what should they produce in our lives? Here's application number one. These truths should move us to comfort in Christ. These truths should move us to comfort in Christ. The living God has created you. The living God who created the universe has fearfully and wonderfully made you. And he knows you. And he's with you. And he will never let you go. He's sovereign over every detail of your life. He knits you together in your mother's womb. From before you were born in eternity past to eternity future and everything in between, God is in control of your life. This is a big God. This is a sovereign God, a creator God, a loving God. And so knowing this about God should bring great comfort, security to your heart. Comfort and security. I want you to think about all the ways that the Bible speaks of God's knowing and protecting and providing for you. So just think about these, these, these New Testament metaphors, okay? New Testament images. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God is so sovereign 
that he knows all over the world whenever a bird dies and falls out of a tree. He's sovereign over that minute detail. And God knows every single hair on your head. Take great comfort that God knows you. John 10, 28 and 29. These are the words of Jesus. I give them eternal life, and they will never, no, not ever perish, is the way it's worded there. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So you are in the double grip of Jesus the Son and God the Father, and no one can come and take you out. That should bring comfort to your heart. And then Paul's words in Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What should these truths do? Move us to comfort in Christ. Second application. Okay, what else should these truths do? These truths should move us to pray to Christ. These truths should move us to pray to Christ. Okay, the last two verses of this wonderful psalm is a prayer. And have you thought about the irony of David's prayer? Okay, how does David start the psalm? Go back up to verse 1. Oh Lord, you have searched me and have known me. You know all these things. I've spent the past psalm telling you, God, that you already know everything. You're sovereign. You knit me together. You have all knowledge. And then here at the very end, why in the world would David pray and ask God to search him if God knows everything? Is it so that God has knowledge that he didn't know before and he needs to kind of do a little investigation because he doesn't know? No, the purpose is for us. Here's the question. Are you bold enough to pray like this? I mean, are you really bold enough to pray like this? Are you truly willing to have the all-seeing, all-powerful, all-present Lord and Creator search the deep recesses of your heart? Here's the point. He already knows what's there. It's not for His benefit. It's for your benefit. Because here's the, here's the problem. You and I are so blinded in idolatry. We're blinded in the lust and the selfishness, the pride of our hearts. We, we need the Holy Spirit to shine that divine spotlight on our hearts so that we can come to face to face with what's actually there. So that we can confess our sins. So that we can see if there's any grievous way in us. So that when we do get confronted with what's lurking deep within our heart and it's pulled out and and it's shown to us, we can confess that to the Lord. We can repent. We can trust and we can flee to Christ. You see, when you do 
ask God to do this deep dive into your heart, if you're bold enough to ask God to do this, and you really, really want God to do this, guess what? He's going to do it. He's going to reveal some things to you. Isaiah 65, 24. Before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. If you're bold enough to pray and ask God to do this, He's going to reveal. He's going to show. He's going to bring things to the surface. But here's the problem. Why don't we pray like this? Well, maybe we're too prideful. Maybe we're so blinded in pride we don't want God to do that. Maybe we're too busy. We don't take the time. Or maybe we're too afraid because of what might be exposed. Let me challenge you. Let this be your prayer every day. I mean, let, let Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, let this be your prayer every day. And don't pray it in fear and dread, but pray because God already loves you and he promises to cleanse you and he's doing this for your good, to grow you, to try you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So number one, these truths should lead us to comfort in Christ, take great security comfort in Christ. Number two, these truths should lead us to boldly pray to Christ, ask Him to do these things. But here's the third application. Really, these truths should move us to live for Christ, to live for Christ. How does the very psalm end? Yes, it's a prayer, and yes, there's great theology about God's omniscience, His omnipresence, His omnipotence. David has prayed for God to do this deep dive into his heart, to search him out intimately, to try him. But what should it ultimately lead to? For you to walk or you to live a changed life, being led by the Lord in the way everlasting. Lead me in the way everlasting. Lead means you're, you're actually living your life. You're, you're, you're living the course of your life. You're living for Christ. It should affect the way you live. In other words, your life should be different because of this psalm. Not only should the theology inform you, but the prayer should inform you. And when you take the theology with the prayer and you begin to think big thoughts about God and He begins to expose things in your heart, it changes the way you actually live your life. You should walk in confidence, not in fear. You should walk in forgiveness, not in condemnation. You should walk in security, not in anxiety. And you should walk in holiness and godliness, not in rebellion and sin. And you should live for Christ because He is that powerful. He's that glorious. He knows all things about you. He's everywhere present. He will never leave you or forsake you. He has knit you together in your mother's womb from before you were born, back during the, before the foundation of the world. God sovereignly had you in mind in that book written for you. He's the author of every detail of your life. And he's never going to let you go. Will you be moved to comfort 
in Christ? Will you be moved to pray to Christ? And will you be moved to live for Christ? And that's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for you, to the glory of God. So let's go to him in prayer. Lord, this is our, our prayer. We are like David. We, these, these thoughts are precious to us when we think about them. They're, they're vast. We, we can't even begin to comprehend your great power and love toward us. And so, Lord, help us to be moved to find comfort in you, Jesus. If there's anybody that's watching this that doesn't feel the comfort and the security of the Lord as their strength and their rock and their refuge, would right now in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you give them comfort? Lord, help this move us to pray. Help us to be brave enough to pray like this, that we would really, truly ask you to do a deep dive into our hearts so that we can truly see what's there and, and deal with our sin and repent and confess. Would you try us and grow us? And ultimately, Lord, would this move us to live for you, Jesus? It wouldn't just be a matter of talk. It wouldn't just be a matter of theology in our heads. And maybe not even just the, the warmth of our hearts thinking about these things, but Lord, let it translate into lives that glorify you. Lead us in the way everlasting. Lord, that's my prayer for us individually. It's my prayer for us as a church. Father, you've got to lead us. I am not strong enough to lead myself, much less this congregation. Lead us, Father. Lead us in the way everlasting. We want to follow. We want to be right in step with where you're taking us. We want to live for you, Jesus. Grant us the strength and the grace to do these things for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.